Welcome to Thinking with Dr. Barry Whitney. This podcast series is compiled from Dr. Whitney's university class entitled Justifying Beliefs. The thesis of this class is that we all hold beliefs, and no matter what they are or how deeply we adhere to them, we owe it to ourselves to apply rational testing of our beliefs in order to aim to justify them. This class takes us along that journey, perhaps for the first time or more deeply. For further insights and materials mentioned in this series, please refer to the resource page on Facebook entitled Thinking with Dr. Barry Whitney. The hard version, and it's just starting to show its ugly head right now, but the hard version of the moral proof, some people are saying, I think they say there's, a, there's some kind of a moral law that, that isn't me, it isn't society, but it, it's external and objective, but it isn't God. And I find that one just meaningless. But I can't believe how many people are saying that now, um, especially the evolutionists. They want to say somehow that a moral law emerges from evolution. And, and I can't, I can't, I can see how instinct is there. But you know, if you say that evolution's all about survival, Survival of the genes. That's all it's about. It's about the struggle to survive. That's the bottom line. So our instincts are important because we have this instinct to survive. So if you're faced with a certain situation, your instinct kicks in and you survive. Not a problem. But what happens when your instinct like, hits this roadblock? You're a mother, let's say, and the child is burning in the bedroom upstairs. The instinct says, survive. But something else says, save the baby, and maybe your life is on the line. What I'm saying is that if you think that evolutionary instinct to survive is the source of some kind of an objective morality, that seems to be what's going on out there, although it's very complicated. I am saying that instinct is very, very different from conscience. A mother would have a conscience telling her, my instinct is to survive, but my conscience tells me I should save the baby. Like, we do that all the time. Our instincts shouldn't always be followed. Our instincts aren't always right. Our instincts are selfish genes, as Dawkins says, to survive. But there are lots of examples where our instincts would be wrong. We might not survive, but we're doing the right thing. So if, when I'm reading these naturalist atheists who say that we can explain a moral law beyond ourselves, but it's not God, I'm not seeing a candidate that I can live with, like an instinct certainly isn't it. And I don't see how moral law can evolve from some blind unconscious genes in a random variation. Um, I just don't see it. I'm going to study it and try to find out, but I just don't see it. Uh, but that would be the more difficult version of the moral argument. Arguing against relativism is easy, but arguing against two claims that there's a moral absolute One's God and one's something else. What the heck is a something else? That's what I can't figure out. The moral law has been really simple. It's basically been an argument against relativism, saying that there has to be an objective, real source beyond ourselves that we appeal to when we have moral disagreements. Now, having granted that point, that the moral argument for God would hold, 
because God's the only legitimate source. Now we have the naturalist saying that, yeah, they're probably right. We, we, better, we better figure out what an objective source for moral conscience can be, but it can't be God. So that's what, that seems to be what's happening in the social sciences right now, trying to find this alternative to God. Because you know the whole game of naturalism, the whole game of academia, is to explain everything without reference to God. That's how bad it is in this culture. Explain everything without reference to God. And now we're at the point where we're trying to explain why we feel morally obliged. It's so simple to say, well, it's because there's a God. That's why we feel morally obliged. That's what the Bible says. That's what all religions say. It's, it's obvious. But if you don't believe in God, you've got to have a different theory. They're starting to come. The debate is vicious. It's just, there's all kinds of stuff going on. It's really hard to follow. Social psychology, evolutionary biology, all uh, evolutionary psychology, evolutionary social, all kinds of fields are tackling this. That's, that's going to be the new version of the moral law not only showing that moral relativism or the moral argument for God's existence will, will have to be expanded into um, that you've got to fight two things from now on uh, if you want to prove it's God. Um, now, having said that, I just said if you want to prove it's God, everybody realizes, right, that this is one of these rationalistic, classical apologetic arguments. No one has to prove it's God. No one can prove that the moral law is based in God. This is all probability. This is using our limited reason to try to understand the infinite. There are serious, serious limits on what we can do in this class on justifying religious beliefs. We have to use all the evidence available. I think it's better to go as far as we can and then say that's as far as we can go right now because we don't know anymore than to say we don't have to justify beliefs at all. That would be a cop-out. That would be pure faithist, giving up, agnosticism, I don't know, I don't care. I think we have to go as far as we can go, always acknowledging that we can only go so far. When you're trying to decide whether something is true, in general terms, all of this is true. It's, it should work. It should be proven as best you can empirically, unless it's God, you know, it can't be proven that way. It should be rational. It should, of course, it should be coherent. You shouldn't have contradictory parts of your theory. You should feel it emotionally as true, but it better correspond to reality, or else all this other stuff is probably meaningless. When we were looking at those tests for worldviews, rationality, coherence, this is actually a better way to do it, I think. Our theories, if you want to know what's true, I think it's all of the above, depending on the object that you're, you're discussing, though. See, this one, if you're just an empiricist, if you say, I have to be able to verify it with my five senses, that's not going to help much in religion. That's a scientific test, but it's, it's, not a, it's not a theory of truth for religion. So, The irony of what we're doing here what I've been trying to do is give rational justification for religious beliefs. And yet this society is either skeptical or it's purely subjective. It's not convinced. It's not impressed with rational arguments. It could care a hoot about scientific evidence or historical evidence because it's so immersed in subjectivism. 
some, just in, in, in a one-liner, universal skepticism, a lot of people are still there saying that we can't really know anything for certain, right? We don't really know anything for certain. Therefore, why bother? Religious skepticism is saying, we don't know much about religion in particular. We may know some things in science, but of course with religion, it's all just a mystery. We, we can't possibly know anything for certain about religion. Now, I hope you, you, can, you know the answer to that already, right? But this is, is, is what the culture seems to do against what we're trying to do in this class. First of all, either skepticism or subjectivism. With respect to religious beliefs, number two, it's saying, come on now, you really can't justify religious beliefs. Surely we have to be skeptical about people thinking they can prove life after death and on and on and on. If somebody says, everything we've done in this class, oh, it's been a ball, but come on now, you can't justify religious beliefs. For anybody to say you can't justify religious beliefs, there's nothing we can do, we should be skeptical, look at the evidence. We've got 20 proofs for God's existence. We've got tons of evidence that the Bible's trustworthy. There's tons of evidence. Crete has about 25 arguments for life after death in that one chapter. 25 and 20 arguments for God's existence. For somebody to say religious skepticism is the name of the game because what can you people prove about God and afterlives and biblical miracles and whatever? What can you prove? Well, the answer is we can prove tons. So read the skepticism and then look at his answers. Now, skeptics are fine. We all know skeptics. They need proof. We've given them proof in this book and in this class. That's what, what about subjectivism, though? That's an even bigger problem. When people say, come on, there's no such thing as truth. It's all subjective to me. I make it up. So instead of saying there's no truth, as the skeptics do, the universal subjectivists say, Everybody has the truth. It just contradicts. But that doesn't matter. This is, this is, I hope you appreciate how Eastern this is. We're living here in Western culture. 2,500 years of Aristotelian logic. What you see is what there is, says Aristotle. If you see a clock on the wall, trust me, it's on the wall. That's the correspondence theory of truth that Aristotle proposed way back 2,500 years ago. We live by that in Western culture. Logical laws, logical contradictions, consistency, all of that stuff that we look at, all the tests. But in the East, it's like, who cares about logic and reason and rationality? It's all, this is very, very pantheistic. There's, and it's come to this culture in the last hundred years, this attitude that there really is no truth. It's all just subjective to me. And then you break it down into moral subjectivism. So we have all of this moral relativism that I hope you can see the moral argument for God's existence refutes. That to say that cultures are different, this is where this comes in, to say that all cultures are different, that proves relativism. Different in what? In a few practices, but are they really different in their moral law? No, they're not. They're different in how they apply it and how they understand it. It's practice, not, it's opinion, not, not, not what they actually believe. What about religious subjectivism? He says, you'd be surprised how much rational proof and evidence there is for religious belief. And, and it's not subjective, it's objective. Which means that it doesn't just, it's not just my opinion, it's something that we can all look at like an object. Here's the argument. Here's the evidence on a piece of paper. We can all look at the evidence. And, and, and uh, 
and weigh it rationally. I know this sounds like a little bit extreme, but I've given you a lot of theory here because I would rather you you leave the class not just knowing a whole bunch of things about, but just that you get the point that we have to look for evidence and rationality and avoid skepticism and subjectivism. The argument is that there is no Christianity without miracles, and there is no miracle without God. It's a very good argument for God's existence, but miracles are misunderstood, abused, maligned by science and this culture in general for a lot of reasons, and they can all be refuted. Now, the teleological argument for God's existence is two arguments, Aristotle and Aquinas. The teleological argument basically says the world is ordered. And that order, that complexity, can't come about without an orderer. The only other option is that it came about by chance or some kind of evolutionary um, emergence. And both of those are hard to believe. That's one argument. That one I wouldn't want to defend today as much as I would the second one. So the first teleological argument, the one Kreeft is talking about, I think it's number five, is that the world is like a machine. It's intricate. It's complex. It's interrelated. It's, it's a big unified structure. It's not a chaos. How does that come about? By chance or by an orderer? So the traditional argument has been it can't come about by chance. It can't just fall into place. That's an argument for God. Now, there's even a better one now in the last 20 years, since 1976, 77, we started talking about intelligent design. Intelligent design is the argument that there are more than a hundred coincidences, scientific coincidences, like the ratio to matter to antimatter, from oxygen and heavy oxygen, the acceleration of the Big Bang, uh, the distance of the Earth from the Sun, the distance of a star from another star, the distance of the Moon from the, from the Earth, and all kinds of chemical laws, electromagnetism. There are over a hundred pieces of evidence in science that no one can explain. Why is the acceleration of the Big Bang exactly the way it is, not slower by a fraction, not faster by a fraction. If it were slower by a fraction, there would be no life. If it were faster by a fraction, there would be no life. Let me give you my favorite one. The Earth right now, we're on a ball. We're flying around the sun at 72,000 miles an hour. It takes 365 and a half days to go around the sun. 72,000 miles an hour. Every 18 miles, something happens. We have 72,000 miles an hour. It's a, I, I wish I knew how long it was. I didn't calculate how many miles that is, how many billions and trillions of miles it is to make that transit around the sun in one year. Every 18 miles, the Earth's orbit around the sun deviates by one-ninth of an inch. One-ninth of an inch. Just a slight deviation. If it deviated by one-eighth of an inch, we'd all die. There would be no life. If it deviated by one-tenth of an inch, we're all dead meat. It's over. 
That's one of over a hundred coincidences which led to human life on this planet rather than a dead rock. Christianity, Judaism, the ancient Greek religions, they all said it's all here for us. So we have this so-called anthropic argument. It comes from the same word as anthropology, anthros meaning human. It looks like the entire universe came about for the production of human life. Hundreds of coincidences had to occur for us to exist. And by the way, none of them should have existed. Why is the speed of the Big Bang the way it is? Why is there electromagnetism? If the force of electromagnetism were any more or any less by a fraction, there's no life. If strong and weak nuclear forces were stronger or weaker than they are by small fractions, there's no life. And on and on and on and on it goes, a hundred plus examples of so-called coincidences. Science doesn't know what to do with them. Science resists them. And yet it's scientific data we're talking about. It's, it's called the anthropic principle. I, I once gave a paper at Texas, the anthropic principle, and the audience was full of physicists, and not one of them said it was wrong. So I, I, I was shocked. I had no problem. They all agreed. That, that's a, that, that must be a progressive place. What it's saying is, instead of saying that the world is ordered, like this first version of the teleological argument says, therefore there must be an order-er, See, for all we know, it might be evolution that orders the world. That's one of the arguments against that. There's a better teleological argument now, intelligent design. It's the, it's the argument that people are trying to keep out of the schools because, God forbid, it's, it's talking about a God, a, a force, an intelligence that's behind. People are writing books about why we shouldn't exist. There are major physicists saying there should be no significant life in the universe because to have life you have to have over a hundred coincidences fall into place and all inter intermingle there's no way on earth this could happen by itself the odds are just that one of these things would happen are astronomical against they all happened here we are there's a very important argument saying that the only way to explain these coincidences is to say they're not coincidences you can't win the lottery 101 times in a row, you know, and, and for me, not saying it's rigged. There's something going on here. It can't be coincidence. The ratio between the nucleus and the, and the electron or whatever, all, just the fact that there's a Pauli exclusion principle, the whole basis of chemistry. Why is there a Pauli exclusion principle? Why is there gravity at just the force it is? Why is there all of... These things have no explanation. Remember, science's version of this thing is that everything just exploded 15 billion years ago. There's no design to it. It's just, just a, a cosmic explosion from almost a pinpoint of, of matter. Where that came from is the cosmological argument. Remember last week, we, the, just so you, you have your bearings in this, these are two distinct arguments. Last week, we talked about how can the universe exist at all? unless there's a first cause. That's the cosmological argument. Now we're saying, granted that the universe exists, why is it so ordered? Where did all these coincidences come from? How can there be so many interlocking impossibilities all happening? They're happening. They're here. Science is resisting saying it's God, but 
the words intelligent design are starting to appear. Um, and this has only been the last 30 years at most. I don't know why this is being suppressed. There's a vicious anti-movement out there to say that this is all nonsense, but I've seen piles of physicists who agree with it, and most of the physicists that I know write about it. And the ones you're going to read are physicists. These are not just kooks sitting in an office. They're physicists saying, we believe in intelligent design. We have, last week, this cosmological argument, and now we have this teleological anthropic argument, intelligent design argument, these are two powerful, rational arguments for a designer. That's what we mean by God. Like, if anybody says there's no evidence for God, we should be skeptical until science can prove it. We're getting pretty close now. Science is never going to admit that it's God. It's going to be a super force. That's, that's the closest they'll come. Stephen Hawking, though, you know, the word God starts coming from his mouth, and now the enterprise of science is to work really hard and try to figure out what else it could be. What kind of intelligence can bring about all these coincidences? I can give you the, um, the opposing argument in one sentence, though. Um, if all these things didn't happen, we wouldn't be here to be talking about it. So aren't we lucky? Now, if you think about that, that looks like it devastates the intelligent design argument, saying, well, something had to happen. It happened. We had all of these things happen, so here we are. So what's the big deal? My answer to that is, the refutation is, nothing had to happen. And these hundred-plus coincidences have an infinity to one against them happening. They shouldn't have happened. Even according to the physicists, they shouldn't have happened, and yet they all did. They're all here. That's why we're here. So it doesn't look like we're here by fluke, by pure luck. It looks like we're here because of intelligent design. That's a very interesting argument for God's existence. Thank you for listening. We invite you to join us for the next episode as the journey of justifying beliefs continues.